0: Hope someday when we're singing that song, the eastern sky just splits open. Hallelujah. What a savior. One prayer request that I didn't mention a while ago is Mary Beth Graber is having surgery uh, this week on her shoulder and her wrist, and so we do want to pray for her uh, this week. So just remember that in your prayers as well. I'm going to be continuing today in our study of First Corinthians. Uh, if you're able to stand with me again, I'm going to be reading from First Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, We're kind of right in the middle of this chapter. I'm going to start at verse 6 and read down through verse 19. Um, And Paul here is instructing us on the use of tongues and prophecy in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting at verse 6. The Apostle Paul tells this to the really struggling church at Corinth. Now, brothers... If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for the battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, How will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, One who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say, Amen? your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying for you may be giving thanks well enough but the other person is not being built up I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you nevertheless in church I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue let's pray Father God, I thank you for these words that you've written to us and preserved for thousands of years now. For us to study and for us to get to know how you desire for corporate worship to take place. How you desire for us to interact with one another and encourage one another and build one another up. If it weren't for these instructive words, we may very well be doing the same things that the Corinthians were doing, in really messing things up. And so I pray, Father, that we would heed your instruction here, that you would help me this morning to teach it clearly, so that we could understand and know together what you would want us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. My wife and I had the privilege of traveling for two weeks in Germany back in 2001. Greta had taken a couple years of German study in college and was very interested in the culture and visiting some of the cities that she had studied and so forth. And So before we had children, uh, we decided we would pack up our bags and and head to Germany and enjoy ourselves there. And we did. We had a great time. Uh, We got to enjoy some real bratwurst and... German potatoes. It was wonderful. These German big German meals that they served there. We went to one city and they were having a, a street festival, and a, like an Octoberfest kind of thing. We got to participate in. For you kids that like Disney World, uh, you know the castle, Cinderella's castle. That picture that's always the Cinderella's castle. Well, that actual castle is in Neuschwanstein, Germany, and we got to tour through it, walk walk through the castle. Beautiful, amazing, hundreds and hundreds of years old. Got to go to Berlin and stand above the bunker where Hitler took his life at the end of World War II. What a fascinating time. Really enjoyed our time in Germany. Greta could speak the language, at least enough to get us around for the most part, But even while we were there, there was always this sense that we were foreigners. There were times when we just didn't fit in. And there were two incidents that really kind of stand out in my mind of how I felt like a foreigner. One took place in a train station where we were waiting. We traveled by train between cities, and there were a lot of people sitting around at this train station, patiently waiting for the train to come into the terminal. Greta needed to use the restroom so she got up and she left and while she was gone she had just left this voice comes on the loudspeaker booming German voice rattle off something in German I had no idea uh, what he was saying but apparently it made a stir in the people around me because they all jumped up grabbed their luggage and just took off running full force somewhere all left and I'm kind of sitting there looking around like, you know, what just happened? What's going on? And Greta came back and she said, where did everybody go? I said, I have no idea. He came on, he said something, people went running, I have no idea. And uh, so we sat there a little bit and the, the voice came on again and rattled off, a, I guess, a similar message. Uh, Greta could understand it and she says, oh my goodness, our train is coming in on a different track and it's getting ready to pull out now. So we ran as hard as we could. We literally jumped on the train as it was starting to move. You've seen those on movies? That that was us. Uh, We jumped on. We made it. But clearly the language was a barrier for me. I I couldn't understand. If my wife hadn't been along, I might still be sitting there wondering, where's my train? What's going on? That was one incident I remember. The other one that really stood out to me happened on a Tuesday afternoon. I remember it distinctly because it was that fateful day that became known as 9-11. And we were sitting in Berlin. It was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon that day. And we had just checked in. We turned on the only English-speaking channel on television, which was CNN. Um, And we watched in horror as planes were flying into the Twin Towers as our country was being attacked. And there we were, on foreign land. We didn't know if we were safe. We didn't know if we should go home. We didn't know what we should do. So we called the U.S. Embassy there, and they told us that we were in a, uh, a, an ally country, a pro-American country. That we would be fine, um, but just to be aware of our surroundings. And <laughs> when you don't speak the language and you feel like a foreigner, and someone says, just be aware of your surroundings, suddenly you feel like you have this giant neon sign kind of flashing above your head, pointing down, saying, American, 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 right there. Foreigner, different, right? We went to a grocery store. A couple hours later, we had a little kitchenette in the apartment we were staying. So we went to a grocery store to get some groceries. And as we came out of the grocery store, nervous, nervous, you know, watching our surroundings, aware of what was going on around us, not being sure what was going on. It was dark. All of a sudden, there was this whistle, blue, felt like right behind me, loud, shrill whistle. I, don't, I probably came two feet off the ground, squealed like a little girl, and turned around, and it was just a policeman in the intersection directing traffic, right? Telling, telling people where to go. And I turned to Greta and I said I am so ready to get out of here and get somewhere where I know what's going on. I felt like a total outsider. Completely unwelcomed and unsure of what was going on around me. I tell you those stories to say this. In the very same way the non- Tongue speakers in the church at Corinth felt like total outsiders. All this stuff was going on around them. They watched as, as people were speaking in tongues. And just like I felt in Germany, they would have been sitting there thinking, I don't fit in here. I just want to go somewhere where I know what's going on I think that's why Paul over and over in this chapter stresses the importance of the intellect of knowing of the mind of being intelligible of speaking in a common language because he he understands the importance of coming together in worship and in worship coming together in one mind in one voice in one intellect. And so he's appealing to the people in the church of Corinth to use a common language so that it doesn't erect barriers inside the church, so that these people coming in weren't disengaged. You see, the heart, the emotions, the will are all informed by the mind, even in the life, in the corporate life of worship. And so if the mind is not being informed because everybody is speaking in foreign languages inside the church, then the effect of that is that there are barriers going up and there are people that are being alienated inside the church walls. And Paul didn't like that. Paul didn't want that. Paul wanted people to come together and for the church to be built up together, to be this edification together. That was Paul's idea in the church. So I've laid this out this morning, these these verses, in, in three different parts. These are in your message notes. Paul kind of introduces his idea and then he's going to use three illustrations. He's going to use lifeless instruments, or we just call them musical instruments, languages, and then corporate events, primarily praise and prayer to illustrate this idea that the sound has to be distinct. People have to understand it. They have to get it in order for the church to be built up. So that's what I, we want to understand this morning, okay? So let's start. Let's look at verse 6 and, and we'll begin. Now, brothers, he says, If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Notice Paul addresses them here as brothers. As you might recall from other times in this letter, when Paul elicits the use of the word brothers, he's getting ready to lighten the blow a little bit. He's getting ready to say, guys, I'm one of you. Uh, Brothers, and, and we could properly includes sisters brothers and sisters I'm one of you so this instruction that I'm about to give you is the same instruction that God gives me okay we're we're in this together so he says if i come to you speaking in tongues meaning exclusively in tongues if i come to you and all i do is speak in tongues i don't speak the normal Greek language, the common language that you're used to, I only come to you speaking in foreign languages. How will that benefit you? And the implied answer is, it won't benefit you because you won't understand what I'm saying. If I just stand here and just jibber-jabber in in some language, the illumination that God has given me will not be made manifest to you because it's in something you don't understand. You're just going to be sitting and watching. So Paul says, if I come to you and I have some revelation or some knowledge, which those two, by the way, overlap. A revelation is God speaking into the mind of man. Uh, Knowledge is God equipping man with some knowledge of his attribute or some wisdom about God. If I come to you and I have some knowledge or some revelation of God, if I don't speak speak to you in prophecy, or if I don't teach you, then it won't benefit you. That's Paul's point here. If an individual receives a revelation or receives knowledge, but can't communicate it in a common language, it does no one any good. It doesn't build anybody up. So Paul's going to illustrate that. He's going to say, let me me show you what I mean. Let me teach you from some common items that you have there in your possession. Number one, he says, let me talk with you about musical instruments. Look at verse seven. He says, if even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? Have you ever heard somebody practicing a musical instrument? Especially when they're not very good. Have you ever heard somebody practicing a tuba or a trombone, and they're not very good, and you just kind of want to plug your ears or run into the room and just say, have mercy on me for just a couple minutes, okay? I I can't stand this any, any longer. If an instrument doesn't make distinct noises, it hurts the ears, right? It's a noise, couple weeks ago here on Easter uh, we had a couple young ladies that played trumpet at our sunrise service did a wonderful job in fact one of those uh, individuals was really cute Um, if you weren't here that morning that particular one shares the bed with me at night so don't don't panic but why was it a great job why did they do a good job that morning because it was this they knew the notes they knew when to play them they knew the intensity on which to blow into the trumpets, so one wasn't overpowering the other, and they had the right rhythm. Those three things together, the right notes, the right intensity, the right rhythm, created a tune that we recognized. And so we sat and we enjoyed it. It was, it was beautiful. It, it reminded us of, of, of a hymn. We could sing it in our minds. We, we could understand. We could participate. We could follow along with them, Right? Now imagine if one of those two had just begun, had just started playing random notes. The other one was playing very nicely, and, and the second one just started playing random notes, and you'd kind of get this feeling of, "Yeah, something's a little off here." But what if both of them started playing random notes one really loud, one really soft, different rhythms? At some point you would just say, "Ah!" It's just noise. Right? Next year we get different trumpet players. I just, we can't handle that any longer, right? This is what Paul is trying to get across. Paul's saying, even lifeless instruments like the flute or the harp, if they don't play in distinct notes, distinct sounds, you're not going to understand anything that's being played. You're not going to get it. In other words, it must be intelligible to the mind in order for you to understand and participate with your heart. That's Paul's clear admonition here. The same is true for a bugle. Look at verse 8. If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Bugles were used then as the watchman watch, and if the enemy was coming, uh, the, the men would play the bugle, And sound the call to pick up your arms and get ready for battle. Now imagine if the enemy was coming and the bugle player just played some indistinct off-the-wall notes or just started playing taps or started playing some random song. It would be devastation for the people in that city. Because they wouldn't understand that's what's being told them is to pick up your arms and get ready to go. The bugle had to be distinct so that the mind could process the message and then act on it. You see? That is Paul's point. He summarizes it in verse 9 and he says, so it is with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, How will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. If you speak with a tongue, if you speak with a foreign language, if you're speaking in some unintelligible language, you might as well walk outside in the windstorm and just talk out there because no one's going to get it. No one's going to understand you. It's as though you're speaking into the air, Paul says. So, lifeless instruments, just like your sound, the sound of your voice in the worship service, must be distinct. It must be understood. In our case, it must be in English so that we can understand as a common language what is being said. Now, Paul's going to turn his attention from lifeless instruments to live instruments, that is, humans. Humans and how we talk and the sounds that we make. Look at verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. I did a quick internet search uh, this week, and there are roughly 6,500 spoken languages in the world today. That's that's a bunch. That's a a lot of languages. About 2,000 of those languages have fewer than 1,000 speakers. But guess what? To those 1,000 speakers, that language means something, doesn't it? They get that language. They communicate well with that language. They collaborate with that language. To you and I, it would sound very indistinct very choppy very different but to them it sounds perfectly normal take some major languages around the world take for example the chinese language for me it would be very difficult to learn that it's very different from our western language and in our western language it's very laid back and kind of drawn out but the chinese language is very precise So it sounds very choppy uh, as they speak. But to those who speak Chinese, it sounds perfectly normal. They can understand it great. They can communicate with one another. The same was true in Germany. The guy on the speaker and all the people on the platform understood exactly what was being said. I was the one that was different, right? It made me an outsider, The language made a barrier for me. I wasn't part of the group. I was an alien. I didn't share that common language. So hear Paul's admonition to the Corinthians. If there's someone in your midst and you're talking in a tongue, It may be a real language. Nobody's even going to debate whether or not it's a real language. Paul's point is saying, if the guy next to you can't understand it, he might as well be a foreigner. He might as well be from a different country because he's not going to get what you're saying. That word foreigner, by the way, in your Bible, or outsider, depending on what translation you have, is the Greek word from which we get our English word barbarian. And Greeks would say, if you don't speak the Greek language, then you must be a barbarian. You must be unlearned or uneducated. That word barbarian is what's known as an onomatopoetic word. (laughs) It's a big word, right? It means this. The sound of the word is how you pronounce it. We would say words like hiss or buzz or boom, okay? When we use those kinds of words, those are called onomatopoetic words. They sound like what we're trying to describe. When the Greeks would use the word barbarian, it sounded like this, bar, 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 bar. That's how they would say the word. So they would say, if you come speaking some foreign language and you're not speaking in Greek, all it sounds like to us is bar, 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 bar. It just sounds ridiculous, sounds like you're uneducated and if you are sitting in a worship service paul says and everybody's speaking in tongues to those who can't understand it it sounds like bar, bar 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 it's miserable it's it's not enjoyable and here's the logical outcome then not only does speaking in tongues with no interpretation, by the way, is what he's talking about here, speaking in tongues without interpretation, not only does that create frustration for the people who can't understand it, but it erects barriers of alienation, that sick feeling that I don't belong here. And worse, Paul says, that feeling is being awakened in the very place where people ought to feel at home. In the community of believers. They ought to feel very welcome there. It makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, how would you feel if you were just sitting there? People were speaking in tongues. It looks like they're having a great time. They're they're apparently praying. They're... They're singing, they're, they're saying different things, they're, they're having this wonderful spiritual experience, but, but there you sit. Would you feel at home? Would you feel welcome there? Would you want to keep attending in a place like that? I think it would become very convenient to be sick every Sunday morning, wouldn't it? If that's what was going on. Paul says in verse 12 so with yourselves since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit strive to excel in building up the church strive to excel Corinthians in those gifts that edify those gifts that build unity those gifts that bring inclusion those gifts that bring mutual edification as you worship God together lifeless instruments have to play the right notes so that people can understand them. And your voices have to make the right sounds so that people understand them and so that people are growing together so that there's fruitfulness taking place when you gather together corporately. Now, Paul's going to turn his attention to their corporate worship, in particular, their prayer and their praise and what's happening there. He says, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power of, to interpret now apparently it was possible for a person who had the gift of tongues to also acquire the gift of interpretation if he prayed and he asked for it in other cases those two gifts were separate there would be one person who could speak in tongues there would be another person who could interpret but Paul says if you speak in tongues pray for the power to interpret so that those around you know what you're saying. You're interpreting it as you're speaking it. So Paul's instruction is simple. It's this. If you're getting ready to speak in a tongue, you have three options. Number one, you can look around in the church and see if there's someone there who you know has the gift of interpretation. Then you can go ahead and speak in your tongue. Option number two, you can speak in your tongue... And you can pray for the power to interpret. And if God grants that, then fine, go ahead. Or option number three, if neither of those two are present, then you need to zip it. Don't do it. Because if you speak in a tongue in that kind of a setting and there's no one there to interpret, then no one's being edified other than you. And and you aren't even being edified in your mind. He's getting ready to say here in just a second. Verse 14. He says, For if I pray in a tongue... My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Why, Paul? Because if I pray in a tongue and you don't get it, then you're not being edified. My mind is unfruitful. It really benefits neither of us. But Paul says, if I pray in a tongue or if I sing praise in a tongue and then I interpret that, then you are edified. Then you understand. Then you are brought into a participating mode and you're not just sitting there wondering what in the world is going on around me. Because, you see, corporate worship, what you and I are doing this morning is supposed to be a participatory event. We're supposed to do this together. It's really a distortion of thought to think that one could come into a worship service, just sit and listen, and then leave. That misses the whole point of corporate worship. Corporate worship is meant to be a place of involvement, a place where everyone is singing, where everyone is praising, where everyone is agreeing in prayer, where everyone is steadying the word of God together, where everyone is being built up. It's a participatory event. We do this together. Paul says as much in the next couple of verses. He says, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying for you may be giving thanks well enough but the other person is not being built up in other words you're talking in your tongue let's let's put you and I in this situation someone is talking in a tongue how are you ever going to say amen to what's being said well what does it mean to say amen I need to know that right to say amen it's a Hebrew word it means so let it be, or I'm with you, or I agree with you. So at the end of prayers, uh, you will hear me say amen. Uh, Really, you should be the one saying amen because I pray, and then if you agree with, or you say I'm with that, then you say amen. I support that. I agree with that. It's an old Hebrew word that's carried down through the ages. In the Jewish synagogue saying amen was so important that you couldn't hardly get your lesson done because of all the amen amen amening that was taking place. Uh, Let me just give you some quotes from some of the rabbis, and here's what they would say about the word amen. They would say this. He who says amen is greater than he who blesses. Here's another one. Whoever says amen, to him the gates of paradise are open." This is what the rabbis would say. Here's another one. Whoever says amen shortly, his days will be short. Whoever says amen distinctly and at length, his days will be lengthened. Consequently, you know what happened in the synagogues? There would be so much amening taking place, people trying to get into the kingdom with all the amens, you couldn't hardly say anything. And there'd be amen, amen, amen. And you know what it's like today? Today, we're so quiet that if somebody says amen, we all turn around and... Who was that? What was that about? Friends, if you agree, it should be an amen, right? You know what the Bible's greatest amen is? It comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me just read this verse to you. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus... That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. You know what the greatest amen is? It is this. I can mess up a church just like the Corinthians could. You could mess up a church just like the Corinthians could. You could come into a church proud and boastful. This is my church. We'll do it my way. You could come into church and you could have every sin of the week with you or every sin of your lifetime with you. Sins of pride, sins of rebellion, sins of disobedience, sins of unkindness toward your spouse, toward your kids, toward your parents, rebellion against mom and dad, rebellion against your teachers. It was for all of those sins that Jesus Christ died. It was for those sins that he was brutally murdered so that you and I wouldn't have to be. Jesus didn't deserve to die, but he did. He was perfect. Jesus was the one that took the little children. He said, come to me. Come to me. I love you. He healed the sick. He preached the word. His life never warranted death. He died in your place, and he died in mine. And three days later, he rose again, conquering death, conquering sin and here's God's promise to you if you will repent of your sin and you will by faith trust in Jesus Christ to be your savior then I will forgive you and I will adopt you there'll be no more tears there'll be no more pain I will welcome you into my family and one day one day I'll welcome you into the eternal bliss of heaven where you will reside with me forever and ever and ever. And it's that message that we say, amen. We come to God and say amen through him, through Jesus, to God for his glory, for that wonderful message. It is a stunning message and so in the face of that message, hear the stinging rebuke of Paul again. If you're rattling off your praise and thanks to God in this, uh, for this wonderful truth, but it's in a foreign language, how can anyone say amen to your message? I don't know what you're saying. It may be the most wonderful truth in the world, but they have no idea if you're not speaking it in a language that they understand. You may be giving the most beautiful tribute to God in that tongue that you're speaking, but it's useless to the guy who's alienated in the pew next to you. So, what's Paul's conclusion? Verse 18. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Paul is never discounting the gift. He has the gift. But he says this, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. The number five in Greek was the smallest rounded number. If you said 5 that was a that was the smallest rounded number that existed. The number 10,000 was the largest number that existed in the Greek language. We have words like billion and trillion and quintillion and I don't know all the words we have. 10,000 was the biggest word in the Greek language. So Paul was saying, I would rather speak the smallest rounded off number in something you understand to teach you, to instruct you, than I would in the biggest number in a foreign tongue. Let me give you a comparison so that you understand. The average length of one of my sermons is about 3,400 words, 3,500 words. When I get really crazy, about 3,600, 3,700 words, okay? To use Paul's ratios, Paul is saying something like this. I would rather speak to my brothers and sisters for two seconds in a recognizable language than for an hour and a half in tongues. You see it better like that, right? Paul says, I'd rather teach you for two seconds than I would to go on for an hour and a half in tongues and do nothing to edify you. Paul is so committed to the upbuilding of the church that he would set aside all tongue speaking if he had the chance for a minuscule amount of intellectual knowledge that he could pump into his people. It was that important to him. I think it should be that important to us as well. So what are we to remember from this passage? How, How do we apply this passage? Let me give you three things that we can apply it to and then we'll finish. Number one, I mentioned it a little bit earlier. Corporate worship should be participatory. This isn't a spectator sport. When you gather for times of corporate worship, we make effort to have you stand together. We give you opportunity to sing together. Earlier, we took our offerings together. It's something we enjoy. We hear together. And if you hang around when this service is over and you go to Sunday school, you'll study together. It's participatory. It's meant to be all of us together. That's number one. Number two, corporate worship should be intelligible. We sing songs that we understand. We sing songs in languages that we get. I try to preach in a way that's clear so that you can learn from it, that you can profit to it, profit from it. And that means... I preach both to believers and to unbelievers. When we come together for church, this is kind of a side note, but when we come together for church, really church is an assembly of the saints. It's a place where believers primarily come together. And so the the primary purpose in corporate worship is to give glory to God as we worship together and for, to believe, for believers uh, to be instructed so that they're equipped to do the works of ministry, Ephesians chapter 4. That's the primary purpose. But in, inevitably, inevitably, there will be unbelievers that are in a corporate worship service. So there's a sense in which we always also speak to unbelievers. And I don't know if you've ever noticed it or not, but the gospel message, the fact that you're a sinner that Jesus died for your sins, and he rose again, and you need to trust in him, that message is in every single sermon I preach. You probably noticed that. It's in every sermon that comes across this pulpit. Why? Because it's a good reminder for you and I that we serve a risen Savior and that he died for our sins, but it's also the message that unbelievers need to hear. It's the message that gives life. It's the gospel message. So that message has to be intelligible. It has to be understood for believers and for unbelievers. And thirdly, corporate worship is a time for mutual encouragement, for mutual upbuilding. Church was never meant to be a place where you come in late, sit in the back and leave early. It's not how it was meant to be. It was supposed to be a place where you're encouraged, where you're built up. It's a together experience. Do you realize? Most of what we do in church, you could do at home. You can sing songs at home. You can study God's Word at home. You can pray at home. But there's one thing that you can't get at home that you come together for, and that is for the encouragement of other believers, for the upbuilding of other believers. That is the one thing that's missing at home. That's the one thing that you come together in a church and you feel that encouragement and you're excited by that. Do you know why we have greeting of friends? (laughs) We have greeting of friends to start the encouragement process. Good morning, I'm glad you're here. We try to kickstart that a little bit. That's called greeting of friends. But I hope that your encouragement to other people goes far beyond that. Let me give you some specific ways that you can encourage other people. Encourage those single moms who bring their children to church every Sunday. I found out last week when my wife is gone, that's a tough job. Encourage those moms. Tell them, I'm so glad you're here. Encourage those teens who have their Bibles open and they're listening and they're intently processing what's going on. We need to encourage that. We say, I noticed, friend you had your Bible open this morning, you were paying. you were taking notes, that pleases God. That pleases me. I encourage you in that. We ought to be encouraging those dads that sing loud during worship and their kids are standing there looking up to dad and watching dad worship this God somewhere. And they're trying to figure out what it is about this God that makes dad so excited that he would just beller at the top of his lungs when he sings. We need to encourage guys like that. The church should be in place where you come and you feel encouraged. You don't feel alienated. We don't want to be like the Corinthians who made people feel like they didn't belong. We want people to feel like when you come, you're going to hear and you're going to praise and you're going to pray and you're going to be encouraged in ways that you can understand in intelligible capacities, capacities, of your mind so let's continue on that path we do a good job of that for the most part uh, but let's watch God can take us feeble humans and he can use us to build up a church in such a way that it is a powerhouse for the kingdom of God let me pray for us Father I am so encouraged by the way that you love us. I am so encouraged by the way you instruct us that you make sure that even your precious living active word was preserved for us and even translated for us into a language that we can understand. Father, we thank you for that. If our Bibles were totally in Greek or Hebrew, many, if not most or all of us, would fail to comprehend it. So I thank you that we have this wonderful gift in a language that we can understand. I pray that we would take these words seriously and that when we gather together in corporate worship, that it would not be a time to show off spiritual gifts, to one-up the next guy to us, I pray that we would take the gifts that you've given us and that we would use those for the mutual edification of the church, that we would build this church up, that we would look for ways to encourage one another with the gifts that you've given to us and that when we leave this service, Father, we would be so excited for what you're doing, be so excited for the things that are happening in the kingdom of God and that we would be equipped then in our minds and in our hearts to take that message, that gospel message out into our workplaces, into our schools, into our homes. We'd be quick to give you your praise, give you praise because all of your promises to us are yes, through your son Jesus Christ and it's through him that we say amen to your glory, to your praise. I pray these things in Jesus' name. And together, all God's people said, Amen.